Welcome to the Whole and Holy Podcast. I'm Peter Vogt. I'm the Dean of Bethel Seminary, and I'm the host for this episode. And I'm delighted today to introduce two guests. I've got with me uh, Janine Brown and Mark Strauss. They are both professors of New Testament at Bethel Seminary. They have both written multiple books on hermeneutics and, and the New Testament, and they both serve together on the Committee on Bible Translation. And we're going to be talking today about Bible translation. So Janine and Mark, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Glad to be with you. Great to be with you. Thanks. Well, let's just jump in. Uh, You know, there's so many different versions of the Bible out there to to choose from. What what makes one version different from one another? Well, I would first say that in many places, there isn't all that much difference in meaning uh, between various translations. In other words, sometimes the biblical writers are quite clear and there's much agreement on what a particular writer means. So it, it's really helpful to distinguish where there's just different words used, but maybe the same meaning and other places where there is quite a discrepancy in meaning. So that's kind of my proviso and I'll let Mark fill in some of the other facets of what makes them different. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of things that make them different. Reading level, for example, some um, translations are geared to a younger reading level with or limited vocabulary how much you use contemporary idiom and how much you use more formal language. Those are issues called register. Um, But probably the most fundamental difference in translations is how much the the translators are trying to follow the form of the original and how much they're they're trying to communicate the meaning of the original. And this is sort of the fundamental debate that has gone on for millennium, uh, millennia, is that um, do you replicate the form or do you reproduce the meaning? And... Um, we There's have a bit strong of a opinions on that but. spectrum there, you know, so that um, all all translators are trying to reproduce meaning. They would say, but there is this spectrum of how much the uh, form of Hebrew and Greek really uh, constrains translations and translators. So I, I agree that that's sort of at the heart of it. I'd also add translators themselves, the teams that, you know, sometimes translation is done by, most often by teams, sometimes by individuals. So the, the makeup of those teams, the sizes of them, how, how um, their stances towards scripture, I mean, those things make differences, sometimes subtle, sometimes more obvious uh, as well. So when you talk about these different approaches, form, preserving form, preserving meaning, can you First, give, uh, can you give a couple of examples for our, our listeners just to orient themselves as to uh, what we might be thinking of, an example of each type of, of translation approach? Sure, uh, sure. I'll start and then Janine can pick up. Um, it, it relates to all different things, but it, it relates especially to, to words and then to idioms and phrases. But with reference to words, a more formal translation is going to try to choose one English word for each Greek or Hebrew word. For example, the Greek word sarx, which is a significant word in the New Testament, sometimes translated flesh, but it has a whole range of meanings. It can mean human life. It can mean something like um, sinful inclination. It can, it, it can mean um, um, a body, a physical body, human tissue, all different range of meanings. But a more formal translation will try to try to stay with one word like flesh for that. A more idiomatic or meaning-based translation is going to say, no, what does that word mean in it, each particular context and translate it accordingly? So words are one way that they try to remain formal or more functional. 
Um, the other way is, is idioms or phrases. If you, if you want to reproduce the grammatical structure of the original, that's a more formal approach. If you're trying to communicate the meaning, um, instead, that's a more, more functional approach. Um, a good example is in, in Mark 1, um, where um, Mark quotes from um, Isaiah and Malachi, and he says, um, behold, I send my messenger. Well, the Greek idiom is something like before your face. I send my messenger before your face. And so a more literal version will say, I, behold, I send my messenger before your face. But before my face is an idiom that means ahead of you. And so a more accurate translation or one that communicates the way we would say it in English is, is ahead of you. Um, we would never say they arrived at the restaurant before our face. We would never say something like that. We would, we would use, use the English idiom. So, so um, Janine pointed out that we try to reproduce the meaning. Everyone agrees on that. But if really your goal is to reproduce the meaning, then functional should be the default. You should be saying, okay, how do we produce the meaning regardless of the form? Another example is in Hebrews 1.3, we have um, the statement that the son sustains all things by the word of his power, logos, and then uh, dunamis in the genitive, or his powerful word. Um, and uh, in Greek, there are many genitives, and they're used often for uh, to make adjectives and all sorts of things. So the word of his power sounds very stilted to us. In fact, it might even sound kind of biblical to us, the word of his power. Oh, wow. You know, um, but it's not the way we speak in English. And you have to discern how that genitive is functioning, uh, the word power. And here it's functioning probably as an adjective as the NIV translates, his powerful word. And we would, that's much more English, right? We've gotten it all the way into English. Sometimes on the, the team that we work together on, um, Mark will be the person over in the one side of the room saying, there's 15 of us, saying, let's just get it all the way into English because we've got it somewhere stuck between Greek and English. So that's another example of formal functional. You can understand both of them in that case, but it is more clear to say powerful word than word of his power. I think of an example, uh, I probably got it from one of you, but uh, isn't it in, in Luke 15 when the, the father goes out to meet his son and it says he fell on his neck in, yeah. <laughs> in one of the translations, which uh, clearly doesn't communicate what, uh, what the author was trying to, to say. And yet that's a more, uh, a more formal uh, equivalence approach. Yeah, that's that's one of my favorite ones, because I jokingly tell my students, that's what I would have done if that son had just squandered my inheritance, I would fall on his neck, you know, sounds like a judo move yeah. or something. But in fact, the idiom means to embrace. And so, you know, it's not a matter of reproducing the form that's important. It's about capturing the meaning. And this is the way real life translation takes place all over the world. If you go into the United Nations and someone is speaking in the front and it's being translated simultaneously into a hundred different languages, not a single one of those translators is going to be translating literally. There's just no way they'd be fired on the spot. And then we turn to the Bible and we, we think that it's best to translate literally or word for word, but it's simply not. One of my favorite examples um, is in second Corinthians 10, 13, because Paul writes with um, uh, he plays on a word, um, the word to measure or, um, so uh, metron and the verb form meritso, uh, metras, the opposite kind of of it. Anyway, the, this play on word occurs four times in one verse. So if you have a very strong formal equivalence model, and I would put the NAS 
be there. Um, this is what they, how they translate it, but we will not boast beyond our measure, there's that word, but within the measure of the domain, which God assigned to us as a measure to reach even as far as you. And they've kept the play on word as best as possible, though not perfectly. Um, but it's so hard to understand what that is mm. saying. Um, a formal equivalence like the NRSV says, we, however, will not boast beyond limits, but will keep within the field that God has assigned to us to reach out even as far as you. Mm. No longer can you hear that it's a pun or a play on word at all. It's somewhat more understandable. I actually like the CEB better, which I think still, where would you put the CEB, Common English Bible, Mark? Is that yeah, somewhere middle. in the middle? Middle, yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. So here's a middling kind of approach. We don't take pride in anything more than what is appropriate. Let's look at the boundaries of our work area that God has assigned to us. It's an area that includes you. Ha, huh. ah, now I understand that verse in terms of um, taking, you know, removing the play on word in terms of being able to see that at all, but getting to the meaning. And mm -hmm. if you have to choose which one, it's probably best to choose meaning over form. And that's that. That illustrates something else. Um, it illustrates how different translations do bring out different aspects of the meaning. If you're looking for word plays, the New American Standard Bible is a good place to go mm -hmm. because you're going to see mm -hmm. more of those. Yeah. If you're looking to capture the meaning, um, you're going to want to go to a more idiomatic translation. And so um, I encourage students to use a variety of translations because they will see different yes. things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, too, and especially ones that straddle this spectrum a bit, you know, that aren't just in the same spot on the spectrum. And we'll talk about a resource for seeing that spectrum. Yeah. Something that Mark has worked on, but that's later. Well, and twice now, um, Mark, you've used, and, and maybe you have too, Janine, uh, the word literal. And I think sometimes we, we tend to think because it's the Bible and, you know, we want the most accurate uh, translation are we, we tend to associate literalness with with being the best or or most accurate but from what you're saying it sounds like that's not always the case uh, can you comment a little bit about that where where should we how should we think about literal in terms of our uh, translations don't get me what? going I'm just saying <laughs> yeah that, I mean actually, that word actually, has is yeah. so unhelpful in almost every context I yeah hear. I was gonna say but we I should banish that it. word completely in some ways Go I'm on. gonna say to Peter to Peter's question no I have not said it during this podcast because I, I I choose not except when I'm explaining why you don't use it I don't use it um, I'm writing a commentary on Philippians right now and I have not used the word literal at any point I'm almost done writing it but I want to explain at the beginning, I'm gonna have a hermeneutical section at the beginning of my commentary, I'm gonna talk about language use and I'm gonna talk about why I don't use it and why it can be really unhelpful in commentaries to use that language. So, so anyway, I'll just uh, say that, that the language, um, it tends to be used so broadly. I mean, it can be used, if I take the Bible literally, it means I take it seriously. And we use it in so many different ways that will kind of move beyond its um, definition in the, in the dictionary. Um, and in the case of translation, like Mark has been saying, um, if you want to go with a meaning-based approach or an idiomatic approach, recognizing there are idioms in Greek that are not the same as idioms in English, and you have to be flexible in how you translate so the meaning gets across, you, um, you can't do something, quote, literal um, much mm. of the time, most of the time. I'm going to let Mark pick up the... Yeah, and I, I think that... 
there's two main ways that literal is used with reference to biblical studies, and both of them are really problematic. So I would say you probably want to banish that word from your vocabulary. We either, on the one hand, we often use it for the way we interpret the Bible. We interpret the Bible literally. And, and, and like Janine said, that means you take it seriously. But in fact, nobody understands the word literal that way. I mean, if I say in Isaiah, it says the trees of the field clap their hands. Is that literal? Well, no, it's not literal. It's figurative. And so we don't translate the Bible literally. We translate the Bible according to what it means, whether that's figurative or literal or whatever. If you're you in poetry, you need to, to yeah, you need to do something. You need to so hear we should not, figurative nature. We should not use the word literal to describe how we interpret the Bible. Our goal is to determine the author's meaning in its historical literary context, not to translate it literally. So it's wrong to use it that way. The other way it's wrong is, as we just said, is with reference to words and translations, because words don't have a literal meaning. They don't have a single all-inclusive meaning. They, they, almost all words have a range of potential senses. So that word sarks we mentioned earlier, it can mean body tissue as, as in flesh, but it can also mean human life or it can mean sinful inclination and a whole range of other things. So almost every time, whenever I hear a preacher or a teacher say, now the literal meaning of this word is, I plug my ears because the next thing that they're gonna say is almost inevitably wrong. So we, we really need to, to stop using that word um, so so frequently, it, it very rarely does it mean what we intend to communicate. And, and it also can, um, the word basic can be substituted in as uh, just as much unhelpfully. So this word, it, it's basic mean is, that's also a misnomer for much language. Yeah. But, but most words don't have a basic meaning. Um, in, in, in the New Testament, when we're thinking about Greek, um, often a word will have a primary meaning in that corpus, in the whole New Testament. In other words, it, it shows up much of the time, meaning this, not always, some words do that, um, you know, some, some words do, but it, that, that's primary usage. It's not basic meaning. Right. So it's, it's sometimes it's a word we learn when we're learning Greek for the first gloss that we learned, first translation equivalent. We, we glob onto that and say, well, that's its basic meaning. No, that's just the one that occurs the most. That's why Bill Mounts and his um, Greek grammar gave it to you as the first in a whole list. Um, so just really asking primary, how flexible language is, primary usage. Primary, and primary means most common. It doesn't mean core or fundamental. And I think that's mm -hmm. what people misunderstand. Yeah. What's the most common meaning? And so, for example, um, in the gender debate that, that we, we've had over the years, um, someone might say, now, the literal meaning of anthropos is man. That's not true. The most common meaning of anthropos is person, is human being. Mm -hmm. It occasionally will be referring to a, a man. Um, and so the idea that, that this is the literal meaning um, doesn't, something that's the most common meaning, it's not the same as saying something is its literal meaning. Words, words have a range of potential senses and you know, they'll have maybe one that's most common, but I think we ought to say most common. Even when we say primary, sometimes people yeah. translate that to mean basic or core. Right. Words don't have primary a Primary use, word. but not primary in the yeah. in a basic sense. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Primary yeah. use would be better. Yeah. The illustration I use when I'm, I'm teaching on that is the word love and how, you know, the range of meaning of love includes, you know, romantic love, parental love, sexual love, and a tennis score. And you can't, you can't bring uh, the, any sense of, of the word love into a tennis score and, and have it make sense in any, in any way. It, it means what it means in, in context. Um, My final favorite illustration of literal 
And it has to do with that serious kind of, I take it seriously, is uh, people in our cultural context can say something like, it's raining cats and dogs out. Mm. And then they have to say somehow afterwards, literally. Like, no, 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 no. I understood it the first time you said it. I took it seriously when you said that. I got my umbrella out as soon as you said, it's raining cats and dogs out. I don't need literally to let you know I, you're really serious about this metaphor, which mm. is the way it's used, a very strange <laughs> use of literal. Yep. I heard one writer say, I was literally glued to my seat during that movie. <laughs> well, no, you were figuratively glued to your seat. <laughs> and seriously, I mean, part of it is that we don't trust metaphors. So we have yeah. to make sure you understand. It's a strange glitch in the English language in the U.S. at least. Yeah. And Peter, that example with love is interesting because then people say the English word for love means all those things. But Greek is wonderfully precise because yeah. Greek has all these different words for love, which, of course, is right and wrong at the same time. English has all kinds of different words for love as well. And Greek does as well. And those, those meanings overlap. So, you know, the, the agape fallacy that agape always means God's kind of love and philia means, you know, human love and eros means sexual love. These, these kinds of lit, supposed literal meanings are simply inaccurate. Mm-hmm. Which sounds like things to be clearer in the biblical languages than they are in our own language. Yeah, we can live with the ambiguity and we figure out pretty quickly what people are saying too. I think we disambiguate pretty well. Sure. So help our listeners understand a little bit as we've talked about these different translation philosophies, that sort of thing. What are, what are some examples of versions that take these different approaches just so that folks as they're thinking about what's on their shelf and what they're looking at. Uh, so they have an understanding of, uh, of which, which versions take which uh, translation approach, at least of some major versions. So you're on the Committee on Bible Translation, which develops the, the NIV. Uh, what, what translation approach is that? Uh, I think we've, we've kind of talked about that, but just to be clear. Shall I start? Sure. Okay. Um, the, the NIV is, is a, I call it, my, my term for it is a mediating translation because it really is in the middle of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. Um, more, the more formal or literal versions, probably the most formal of the commonly available ones would be the New American Standard Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, the Revised Standard Version, the English Standard Version are all in that spectrum. They all tout themselves to be more formal or more, more literal. On the opposite side of the spectrum, which is the functional equivalents, are some really excellent translations. The New Living Translation mm-hmm. That's a great one. is a good example. Um, the new, new Century Version, the Good News Translation. These are all very popular ones on that side. And in the middle, as we mentioned, the, the NIV, the New International Version, the Common English Bible fits well there. Um, the, the Christian Standard, Standard Bible. Yeah. Um, which used to be the Holman Christian Standard Bible, is there in the middle, just a little to the more formal side of the NIV, but but still very much a centrist kind Mm. of translation. Uh, The Net Bible, the New English Translation, those are some of the most common ones. Mm -hmm. And if you want to see a lovely picture, you can look in Fee and Strauss's book, How to Pick a Translation for All It's Worth, Mm. because that it's just a nice little introduction to all things translation, very clearly written, easy to understand, and then there's Nice pic- pictures too, or you know, drawings or graphs. <laughs> Thanks for that little plug, Janina. Sure, that. absolutely. Because I mean, it, it does help to see it visually, you know, to kind of mm-hmm. see. Yeah. And everybody likes to think their translation they work on and that that's their favorite is right at the center of doing everything perfectly. <laughs> but all translations are imperfect because they are 
human translators to work on them. Um, and I think uh, one of the downfalls of our context in terms of English translation, we have so many that we can be really territorial with them. I think it's really helpful to think about using different translations. I often look at quite different translations from the one I'm working on um, and find great value there. So yeah, absolutely, yeah. kind of not to demonizing translations to put it strongly. Let's just um, realize the wealth of what we have and it's fine to have a favorite translation. Nothing wrong with it. Best translation, the one you read, right? <laughs> that's a great uh, that's a great observation and and a good segue into another thing. I, I just want to comment. We'll we'll put uh, the how to choose a translation for all it's worth in the show notes so that our listeners can uh, easily easily find that uh, that work uh, along with any other references you want to share. But um, what you were just talking about, Janine, I think is a really important point. And, and leads me to the question of what advice you might have when someone you know, is, is thinking about choosing a version for preaching or teaching or, or recommending to others. You know, a lot of churches still have pew Bibles, or I guess maybe not as many pews, but they'll have Bibles in, the, uh, in their worship center or sanctuary. Um, others don't, and they, but they, they may choose to, to display a certain version in a a slide or something like that, and, and to be consistent with that. Do you have any recommendations as to how someone might navigate those waters in, in thinking about what to, what to do with that? First, you oh. should consider what your people use and read. I mean, that's mm -hmm. very important. If you've got a church where everyone uses the King James Version, for example, you may want to stick with that traditional version rather than create a war over which version uh, to use. Um, I would say ideally a version somewhere in the middle of the spectrum is best because it's going to be clear to your readers. It's going to read well publicly. Mm -hmm. And yet for your traditional readers, it's still going to sound like the real Bible, which is the one they grew up with, which is normally a more literal or formal equivalent one. So it's kind of a safe option because it, it doesn't sound too idiomatic for them. It still sounds sort of that traditional Bible language, yet it's far more accurate um, than, the, um, than the more literal or formal equivalent ones. And I think you raise readability and that's really important. I mean, if you have the choice to start from scratch for your church plan, or, you, know, you get to decide this thing. Um, I think it's important to realize that um, I think congregations should be reading scripture out loud. You know, we should be hearing the Bible Mm -hmm. um, a lot. Uh, I think that's my, I mean, I just think that's really an important value. So making sure it's very readable um, so that it's good English. Um, and then, and then you have all sorts of options there. Um, it's not that there's just one, but I think readability and out loud, reading out loud. One of our members, Gordon Fee, he and his wife would routinely read the NIV out loud throughout the year. And then notice any parts that were kind of tripping them up in terms of reading. And then so thinking about, is that the best translation there in terms of getting it into um, good English, but English that has a sort of register, Mark mentioned at the beginning, to be read out loud in, in the church that has this feeling of um, putting a value on scripture as it's read. Hmm. Excellent. You, you mentioned, you know, talking about the NIV and Gordon Fee on that, on that committee, and you're both on the Committee on Bible Translation that, that works with that. Maybe our listeners would be interested in hearing a little bit about that, that work. What's it, what's it like to be on a, on a committee like that? What are some of your favorite experiences that you've had 
in that uh, in that work. It it's, a, it's awesome to be on a committee like that. <laughs> yeah, it, I mean, it feels weighty. I mean, you know, you're translating. Wow, and we're revising um, as we meet every year because English continues to change, and we continue to learn things about um, the text in its ancient context. Both of those things are true. So um, the weightiness, but also we have, I mean, I learned so much and about half of these translators are Hebrew specialists, Old Testament specialists and half are New Testament. And so I learn, especially when I'm listening into Old Testament scholars argue about grammar or um, a facet of the ancient context, the ancient hmm. Near Eastern world. I mean, it's just, it's like, going to school, but not having to pay for it or something. It's just, uh, so I think between the weightiness and then the, the way it invigorates me, it's, we meet for eight to nine hours a day. And I, the time flies because I'm learning and I'm processing and I'm constantly engaged, even if it's more listening than speaking, which sometimes is the case from my new Testament perspective to old, but, um, it's just, it's a powerful experience. Yeah, I would, I would just agree. And uh, that awesomeness of it in the, in, in, in all inspiring, Yes, J.B. Phillips once said that doing translation work was uh, was sort of like trying to rewire your house with electricity, with the, the electricity still on, <laughs> that, you know, because everything you do, you're you're in danger. You don't want to get it wrong. You want to get it right. And so sort of that that mentality that it's uh, th this is a group of scholars coming together, but their purpose is not just scholarly, it's devotionally as well. Mm. And they view this as God's word. And so they have great reverence for it and, and getting it right is the ultimate goal. Uh, not trying to promote any particular agenda or theology, but rather to listen to what the spirit is saying through these human authors in that context. And so um, it, it's, it, it's just a privilege um, to, to, as Janine, said to, to hear these various scholars and to hear their wisdom. Um, it, what, what's also interesting is there's, there's a certain chemistry that I really appreciate with the, the CBT. Um, and that, that is, there's a, a, a mix of really brilliance together with humility that we do see come up a lot. I mean, things get argumentative at times and mm -hmm. um, people get care. you know a little bit peeved pissed off, <laughs> bothered by, by others. But at the same time, to see that people go, you know, they get voted down, maybe their, their passion, their passage that they, that they just are passionate about, they get voted down and yet they just pick up and move on to the next one and, and recognize that this is, this is a committee working and the, you know, the consensus is what's going to determine the translation. Um, so it's, it's been really interesting to see that dynamic and the chemistry um, that, that really, to me, is an important component of the committee. Yeah, you have to have a lot of, um, you have to have capacity to let go and also to forgive, you know, um, because again, we get passionate. Doug Moo, our chair, will sometimes stop and say after a particularly passionate discussion, I'm glad that this is not so incidental to us that it, you know, that we're just, okay, doesn't matter. All right, fine. You know, that we just gloss over any kind of disagreement. Instead, there's this vigorous debate and sometimes it gets passionate in deep ways. And he said, I'm glad we all care so much about the work we're doing. It is that important. So um, it is the one place where I think I've seen the most passion mm. come out um, in my group work that I do. And um, it, it all makes sense in that context. Mm. And there's a lot of, we, we laugh hysterically as well at various, I mean, just because, you know, 
the things we would say were funny, you have to be there kind of thing, right? Because it's a bunch <laughs> of translators and a bunch of geeks. And so well, we could we can laugh hysterically. And the keeper of the bloopers at the end of the, the each we meet about a week. And so I look back at him and go, these are not funny at all. But in the in the midst of it, we were laughing so much about this, that, or the other thing. So there's just a lot of emotion that is a part of the process and and a lot of good thinking that goes on mm. in all of it amazing minds. Well, our time is almost up. Uh, do you have any recommendations to our listeners as of resources that they might look at if they want to dig more deeply into this, uh, into this topic, or if you don't have that, uh, any, just any advice or parting, parting comments for our listeners as they're wrestling with uh, sometimes these, these questions? Well, I would certainly say the Fee and Strauss book. It's a it's a brief little book, but it's just got so much helpful information in it. So that would be my continued plug. There's another book that we um, edited, uh, the San Diego Bethel professors edited in honor of Ron Youngblood called The Challenge of Bible Translation, which deals with a number of key issues. There's a chapter on the history of the NIV, for example. There's a a chapter on the King James Version, the history of that, and then a lot of chapters on the nature of Bible translation and some of the key issues. There's some of the issues that are still really crucial and critical in Bible translation are dealt with in that. So that's uh, called The Challenge of Bible Translation. Yeah, I've enjoyed the chapters in that book, very much so. Great. Well, Mark and Janine, thank you so much for being on the, the podcast today. I'm, I've enjoyed the conversation. I'm sure our listeners got a lot out of this as well. So, so thank you so much for sharing your expertise with our, with our listeners. Thanks for being on the episode. Great to be with you. Thanks, Peter. Glad to be part. Well, thank you for listening to Whole and Holy. I appreciate your tuning in. And if you have suggestions for future episodes, or if you have comments, anything you'd like to share with us, feedback, please send us an email at whole-and-holy at bethel.edu. Again, that's whole-and-holy at Bethel.edu. Thanks again for listening. God bless you. Thank you for listening to Whole and Holy. This podcast is a production of Bethel Seminary in collaboration with Bethel University's Office of Church Relations. Please share your feedback with us, including ideas you'd like to see in future episodes, by emailing us at wholeandholy at Bethel.edu. Once again, that address is wholeandholy at Bethel.edu. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.